I'm University of Dayton School of Law Dean Andrew Strauss, and welcome to the second installment of On the Witness Stand, a legal thought podcast where I interview members of the Dayton Law faculty and other affiliates about their research and its connection to vital issues of the day. In this installment, my guest is Carlos Bernal. Professor Bernal is one of our newest faculty. He stepped down as a sitting justice on the Colombian Constitutional Court to join the School of Law's full-time faculty in August of 2020. And he was just elected in November by the Organization of American States to be a commissioner on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He holds an LLB from La Universidad Externado de Colombia, an SJD from La Universidad de Salamanca, an MA and a PhD from the University of Florida. According to Google Scholar, Carlos is one of the world's most cited authors in constitutional theory. Welcome, Carlos Bernal. So, Carlos, I maybe the best place to, to start our discussion would be uh, for you to talk a little bit about your, your background growing up in, in Colombia and how you first became interested in becoming a lawyer and an academic and constitutional law in, in particular. Thank you so much, Dean Strauss, for this opportunity to talk about interesting uh, things with you. Let me, let me begin by saying that, you know, my, my dad uh, was a lawyer his whole life. And then I, I just love what he did for the reason since I was very little, I just, I just knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Then when I when I began the law school, that was back in- The lawyer was your, was your father, Carlos. And my dad was a labor lawyer. I, and so he represented unions or he represented companies or? But both, May, and maybe mostly uh, employees, employees, but sometimes he also gave advice to companies. Uh-huh. So I'm sorry, continue. Uh, thank you so much. Then when, when, uh, uh, when I entered the law school that was back in 1991, which is a key year for the history of Colombia, the constitutional history of Colombia, we were in the process of enacting a new constitution. Uh, in the years before that, uh, there was a, a social crisis in Colombia because of the drug dealing and also because of the guerrillas that led to a situation that we can describe by means of the concept uh, coined by uh, Emil Durkheim of anomie, anomie, that is to say a situation in which the norms are not uh, able to deal with the social problems. Then what people thought it was, we needed a new constitution, the old one was enacted, had been enacted in 1886. So some students, they, put together in a normal presidential election, uh, one vote, one additional extra vote to call for a constituent assembly. And then uh, that was it. And I was part of that because at the university we had uh, working groups and I participated very actively. We were thinking about the principles of the constitution. How shall we uh, either maintain presidentialism or moderate it? Uh, uh, the whole idea of constitutional rights were new back then. Uh, having the constitutional court for the first time in the history of Colombia. So I, I got deeply engaged with that since that episode that happens 30 years ago. Very, very interesting. So was that constitution actually replaced a 19th century constitution? 
That is correct. That replaced the 1886 constitution. That constitution had been amended many times and updated. The, uh, maybe the most important update happened in 1936, in which Colombia embraced the social state's principle, that is to say the principles concerning, concerning labor, labor protections, economic and social rights, and then in 1945, there, there was another very important reform to update the, uh, the structure of the public administration to be able to meet those new goals. Uh, but the 1991 constitution was totally different. It uh, belonged to the new wave of constitutionalism in Latin America that uh, had, been, had begun with the previous uh, Brazilian constitution of 1988. So... Carlos, that was a lot of longevity for a Latin American constitution. It must have been a major, a major um, break with the past. What, what was the, um, what was the, what instigated having such a major break with the past? Actually, what instigated that was first the situation of violence. Uh, back in 1948, uh, um, very important presidential candidate whose name was Gaitan uh, was killed and he represented the popular classes and also the, the farmers. And after that, uh, in Colombia, all these guerrilla movements arose like a manifestation of uh, the people who wanted to be included in the power, in the uh, exercise of polit political power. Then international influences coming from uh, uh, the former URSSA and also from Cuba, they infiltrated those guerrilla. Uh, they had that communist flag, uh, but then they lost that flag. They became just uh, a gangs of drug dealers who tried to profit from the business and then uh, that business flourished which corrupted the, the whole structure of the Colombian society, the private sector, the companies, but also the public sector. And this led to the narcos, to the capos, who really damaged the Colombian society. They killed many people in 1986. They funded the destruction of the Justice Palace. And uh, that was... Uh, that created a deep depression in the whole constitutional landscape of Colombia. So people thought this constitution is, is not anymore able to meet the needs of the society. We need a new social contract. And for that reason, uh, the 1991 constitution was enacted. So you have a really interesting perspective on the 1991 constitution, obviously, being an academic, but also having served on the as a judge on the justice on the constitutional court, how has it held up? Has it met its promise? the The promise of the young Carlos Bernal, who was there at the inception, or do you do you think that the the constitution hasn't worn very well over the the period since? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Actually. Um, I can just talk about my, uh, my perspective. It's, there is a huge literature in comparative, uh, sorry, a huge debate in the literature on comparative constitutional law on methodologies to measure the success of constitutions. There are some empirical studies, uh, Tom Ginsburg and uh, Zachary Elkins have done, have done some work here in the US. 
uh, David Bilchitz has done some work in uh, South Africa, but there is no agreement on how we can measure the success of constitutions. Now, the, the point is the following. I, I believe that every constitution has, has a mission. A mission. For instance, my, my reading of the American constitution in line with the Declaration of Independence, and maybe we can talk about this uh, later, is that the, the mission or one of the missions of the American constitution is, is to protect uh, unalienable rights. That is, that, that concept is entrenched in the Declaration of Independence and uh, this guides the whole history, the whole American history, even, even the um, 13, 14 and 15 amendments. Now, the, the idea of the Colombian constitution or the mission is a different one. I, I can describe now that mission as in the, with the same concept that Carl Claire used back in 1996 to describe the, the aim of the South African constitution. That is the mission to transform society, the transformative society. It's not that the constitution is enacted to maintain a status quo, is designed to transform society. Now, that the concept is tricky, the, and uh, this led to the concept of uh, transformative constitutionalism, but the concept is tricky. Why is that? Because we need to have clarity about the, the point of departure, and now what do we want as a transformation? And there is, of course, disagreement about that. Uh, some people thought what we need is a stronger democracy. But mostly uh, in South Africa, and also this happened in Colombia, the the aim with the constitution was to achieve social transformations related to first poverty. That is one of the points, which is connected co with that idea of economic and social rights and also social, social inequality, but also a little bit of democracy and freedoms, etc. My personal point of view is that with the constitution, with these 30 years of constitutions, we have improved in many respects. For instance, back in before, uh, back in the eighties, no one had access to healthcare. Right now, at least there is a very basic system of healthcare that is universal for everyone. Uh, so uh, the COVID pandemic tested that system, and the system is there afloat. So uh, at least that that's a victory. That's a victory. The education has become more universal and has encompassed people who were excluded from, from that. But still there is a big way uh, you know, to, to go or many, many uh, objectives have not been achieved. Uh, more, the most important I think is peace. It's peace. Despite the peace agreement, despite everything, if, if we read the newspapers, we have every day killings of uh, leaders, social leaders, uh, people who wanted to transform some uh, uh, rural areas, they are killed, uh, the guerrillas, they transform into different groups. So that goal is not, is not yet there. And of course, the quality of deliberative democracy needs to improve, but, but somehow there has been a, a progress in some areas. So, uh, Carlos, that's very interesting. And uh, I'd like to drill down a little bit on that in the area of, say, healthcare and education, to the extent that the Constitution really has carried a lot of the burden of actually improving the lot of uh, poor Colombians, that's a tremendous accomplishment. 
but it probably goes, I'm guessing, to these, uh, to these, the question of how do you actually measure the success of constitutions in doing that. So I'm interested in, in your response, how much of that is actually due to the constitution providing uh, sort of a framework of, of rights to, to make that happen and how much is exogenous political factors that would have allowed for those, that progress to happen regardless of the constitution? That, that is a wonderful, that's a brilliant question that uh, I cannot answer with certainty because of lack of evidence. And my, my answer is, is the following. If we go back to 1991, uh, Colombia, the, I, I can describe the Colombian constitutional position as schizophrenic, schizophrenic. And let me tell you why. Because in the same year, in the same year, Colombia uh, took two fundamental decisions. On the, on the one hand, it inherited that concept of social state, democratic social state from the constitution of Spain in 1978. And, and also this goes back to the fundamental law of Germany of 1949, this idea of the uh, social state, which implies the enforcement of economic and social rights, uh, that are directly enforceable, even by the constitutional court. And also the idea that equality must be real, that is to say that the Congress and the president and also the court has to do something about equality. But on the other hand, Colombia became neoliberal at a time. The, the then president, Cesar Gaviria, he implemented all the uh, International Monetary Fund and World Bank policies concerning neoliberalism that actually for, a, for some time devastated the economy, but at the end they accomplished that goal of bringing wealth to the country and to allow for investment to come into a country, to trade to come into a country, etc. So my, my honest answer is that there are many of the of the outcomes that some scholars attribute to a constitution are really only able, uh, you know, the, the real cost is the other one, is the economic growth and also the possibility of having international investment, the investment in minerals, the investment in gas, petrol, oil, etc., et that gave uh, resources to the country via taxation to be able to accomplish those programs. So my answer is mixed. And, and really, we don't have any objective way to measure what is the cost of the, of the progress. Yes, it becomes so complex because, of course, the Constitution could set up, a, a, it could have a legitimizing fat, uh, role in legitimizing social welfare kinds of programs because they're in the Constitution. It could have an enforcement role that actually the courts, your court, your former court, could order programs to take place. But of course, there has to be the resources for that to happen. Did, does the Constitutional Court in Colombia play a role in actually ordering programs uh, in the area of education and in health to... Uh, to um, uh, to be required, and uh, it does, does that actually happen? 
Yes, that that actually happened, and and I can I can think about at least one very successful case, uh, structural case concerning health. The one that was decided by means of the judgment T seven hundred and sixty of the year two thousand and eight. That is a structural case concerning health in which the constitutional court uh, ordered uh, Congress and then government to update a former health program um, for the sake of making it first universal, uh, egalitarian in the sense that every citizen has the right to the same program, to access the same program, the same procedure before that, there was like a two-track program in which people who uh, had money, they had more benefits and, uh, and uh, access to procedures and uh, drugs. And people without money, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. So the court commanded the Congress to do something about that. But, but let me tell you, the beauty of that lesson was that it used weak remedies. That is to say, instead of uh, telling the Congress what to do exactly, they just set some goals and they offered for the Congress a space of discretion, a space of discretion, uh, so the Congress can uh, uh, do um, uh, whatever they want, you know, and whatever the, te the technicians they advise to do. That is, that is one of the uh, good examples. Uh, but of course, there have been also cases in which, for instance, the court used strong remedies to, um, you know, to order uh, the government, for instance, build a school and I give you three months for that and then at the end nothing happens. So, because it was, uh, from the very beginning it was, it was impossible. So, those cases are not so good, not so good examples and those led to what I call symbolic jurisprudence or, uh, uh, you know, expressive jurisprudence. They express desires. But at the end, those judges were never enforced. So very interesting, Carlos. We're going to take just a real quick break, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the comparison between the Colombian and American constitutional situations. So we're back with Professor Carlos Bernal talking about the Colombian Constitution. And Carlos, I'd like to move on a little bit to the comparison with the, our American constitutional situation. Uh, Colombia is a society that's, that's very divided in many ways, as is the United States these days. What's the comparison constitutionally? Does does the Colombian constitution play a role in the society's divisions? Is it exacerbating those? And how does that compare to the divisions and the role of our own constitution in our own society? Thank you so much. That is an, that is an, an excellent question. I would say that the Colombian constitution attempt to change the division. The, the point of departure of the Colombian constitution was a point of departure of division in the society. Uh, why was that? Uh, what happened before is that uh, back in the 60s, uh, one way that there was all this fratricide war in Colombia between the liberals and the conservative party. And I mean, really war, war with violence, with uh, people uh, with a war that, for instance, at the beginning of the 20th century lasted a thousand days. Uh, but 
then the aim of the constitution was to open the political system to all the forces, all the political forces with the aim of making democracy the only game in town. That was the aim. And I have to say that for some years, it created a little bit of compromise between the different parties. Uh, there, was, uh, there were opposition movements that, uh, tr that could exercise the political rights in Congress. And also they had some people in the court. So they, the system of checks and balances worked for some time. But the, but the real problem that triggered trigger polarization was the peace agreement. That it was a, uh, that catalyzed the polarization in Colombia. Why is that? Because the peace negotiations did not encompass all the parties. They excluded the opposition party, the majoritarian opposition party, and they excluded the military and the victims. Was just a peace agreement between the guerrillas and the former government of President Santos. And for that reason, when that uh, agreement was put to vote in the so-called plebiscite for peace, uh, they lost. They lost the the um, you know the approval of the peace agreement lost. Uh, and then what happened is that President Santos uh, managed to request the Congress and the court to, uh, to ratify the agreement in the name of the people, and they did it. And that, that created a huge for polarization that's still in place, that's still in place. Uh, that, that, was, that was a big problem. What I can see here in the United States uh, is that uh, basically the... Um, the polarization was also a trigger by the, you know, the events linked to the former government. Eh? And, and, there was, and there was something that it was like the year 2016 or 2015, 2016 were, were, was the year for polarization everywhere. In the UK happened again, uh, also with the Brexit. The British society was just pol polarized. And when the uh, Supreme Court issued the Miller judgment uh, that also contributed to, to contributed to the polarization of the British society. What I see here is that that polarization still exists, and that's dangerous because that lowers the quality of democracy. The idea of deliberative democracy is the idea of all us being able to sit under say under the same rule uh, rules uh, to talk about every possible thing uh, with respect of the rights of everyone that is involved and uh, just to allow the best argument to win. But when there, are, when there is polarization, there are fake news, all the means are tolerated. Uh, the goal is not, to, uh, is not to build for the society on the basis of the best argument, but only to, to win the battle against the opponent. And that's damaging the, the democracy. That lowers the quality of the democracy wherever it happens. So it's, it's interesting, Carlos, that it's, it sounds like from what you're saying that in Colombia, the, a, 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 frame, a democratic framework that came through the constitution was actually, to some extent at least, successful in bringing people together that had previously been literally warring. Here in the United States, we have a long-standing tradition 
of deliberative democracy under the constitutional framework. And yet somehow it seems not to be holding that despite this constitution and despite the framework, we're going in the opposite direction. Can you explain that from your perspective of having this more comparative perspective, why we're going in the opposite direction despite a longstanding constitutional framework? Yeah, I, I think that is, that is um, a trend that can uh, really damage the U.S. tradition that has been a model not only for the whole the Americas, but also for other countries like Europe or, or Israel. For instance, I was, uh, before joining the UD, I was visiting professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and then I, I, lear I learned also with the, by means of my conversations with Justice Aaron Barak, of the big influence of the U.S. constitutional tradition in the building of Israel, uh, deliberative democracy. But what happens right now is that the society is growing apart or growing away of those principles, and and that is that is a threat for the future. One thing, in in addition to the political. Uh, polarization that was triggered by the end, you know, by the events linked to the end of the previous government and the beginning of the current government here in the in the US. One thing that is remarkable, and this is happening everywhere, is the influence of the virtual and social networks world, world uh, to politics. That 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 effect, you know, that world is influencing all societies to deteriorate the quality of democracy. Why is that? Because the quality of deliberative democracy is based on the, on the assumptions that we can deliberate seeking the, seeking the best argument, but also on the basis of truth. When technologies allowed for everyone to create uh, fake persons with fake opinions, with fake truths, uh, 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 fake facts, facts etc., fake deeps, that is to say pictures that never happened, etc. That manipulation creates a distortion of democracy. And I, I think that this is a real threat and that threat could be worse every day in developed societies like the US, uh, also with artificial intelligence, with the, with the existence of artificial, artificial intelligence when we have, for instance, a, a software and algorithms uh, trying to make decisions concerning uh, political uh, political events and also uh, political choices of the people. That's that's one problem. Now, what what happened in Colombia before is that uh, there was a situation of war, and one accomplishment of the constitution, even even in the worst time, has been that uh, the parties they they accepted that the constitution was the only game in town that democracy was the, the only game in town. I, I had a personal anecdote about that, is that when I just began to work as justice of the Colombian Constitutional Court, uh, I issued a judgment, I, I voted in a judgment, and my vote was, was decisive uh, uh, concerning a judgment that allowed the opposition parties to make, uh, to participate in the deliberation of the implementation of the peace agreement. Because of misinformation and about the extent of the judgment, one guerrilla leader in a in a news program, he uh, issued some kind of 
threats, implicit threats against, against my life. Uh, he said several things that were not good for me or my family. Then my wife was very fearful. And as I, say, I said to her, look, no worries. If this person is just saying that in the news, no, nothing is going to happen. And, and that was the case, is that even the people who were, who were against that decision, they use a legal mechanism. They, they try to, they use a mechanism for requesting the annulment of the judgment instead of just sending me a killer or a person that can put my, my life in, in danger. So that is an accomplishment of the Colombian constitution. Yeah, I mean, that's really a wonderful accomplishment. And that's been, you know, up until recently, sort of my feeling about our own society, that people have all sorts of ideologies and ideas, but most people, if there's a constitutional, peaceful path towards resolving differences, will actually opt into that because most people don't want to commit violence and don't want to go to war. But, uh, you know, my optimism has been challenged in this country. And I do think the comparative perspective that you bring is tremendously helpful in trying to really understand where we might be able to go in the United States to, to resolve some of the, the problems that we've had. Um, Carlos, I'd like to shift now to um, another topic, which is probably your best known for uh, your work which is now 20 years old, El Principio de Proporcionalidad y los Derechos Fundamentales, uh, now going into its fifth edition, uh, where you really take on sort of a Dworkian view of, of uh, rights as trumps, and you look at rights as more relativistic, that no rights are absolute in constitutions, but they all have certain limits. And I'd like to ask you, you're very familiar, obviously, with the Colombian situation. You've also spent a good deal of time studying and living in Germany and in Australia as well. Um, is the American sort of approach to absolutism, I mean, we tend in the United States to see rights as absolute, is that wholly unique or are there other countries that have this ideology of, of rights as trumps, as absolute? Thank you so much for, for that question. I think that's a wonderful theoretical and comparative question. And let me begin by saying that that idea of rights is, is a concept that uh, can have many conceptions, many conceptions. The American conception, I think, is linked to that idea of unalienable rights, that is to say, rights that can never be defeated, that everyone has uh, because of uh, the, because of we belong to the human uh, race, because we are human beings. And uh, as such, they cannot be infringed, they cannot be limited, and we cannot, we cannot sell those rights. Uh, which is the meaning of inalienable. We, we cannot compromise those rights. We cannot negotiate with those rights. And, and I think that has deep roots, even theo uh, theological roots uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition and also via Locke to the uh, John Locke's the second uh, treatise on civil government uh, to the American constitution. Now, the, 
the, the problem with that is, is the following, is, is to think about what, what is a right, what is a right. And there is a huge uh, debate in, actually in moral philosophy and uh, political morality on first, what, what, is the idea, what, what is the idea of rights? What, what does encompass the idea of rights? And why do I have rights? And there are people who are very optimistic. For instance, Joel Feinberg, he says, you know, uh, we have rights because we deserve, we deserve certain things uh, as human beings. There are some people that says, look, we, we shouldn't talk about rights because actually this is a word that has been manipulated. And when you claim that you have a right, it's a way to say that you must trump anyone and that's impossible in this world. You should talk about interest or uh, anthropologically speaking, but never about rights. That's one, one uh, level of the debate is that level in, in moral and political philosophy. Now, the second level is, is the level of uh, international law, which the idea is that we, we create a, an international system of human rights in which at least we agree upon certain rights that should be recognized elsewhere, everywhere. Yeah, and that's the purpose of the Universal uh, Declaration of, of Human Rights. And uh, we, have to, we have to agree that regardless of the culture, the religions, et cetera, there is a common core and we agree upon that. And that, that common core cannot be touched. Everyone should respect that touch. And of course, afterwards, it comes the development of the re regional system. Now, on a third level, we have the constitutional level. And on that level, we have that US American tradition that is somewhere in the literature is called American exceptionalism. Compared to what happens in mostly in continental Europe. And what is what is happening in continental Europe that there, the, uh, the old German administrative law uh, had some principles according to which the freedom of the people, they can be limited by the public administration if and only if the limitations are proportional, if and only if the limitations are proportional. So the point of the party is not that everyone has inalienable rights and the, uh, those are areas that the public administration cannot touch but that everyone has unlimited freedom. However, however, for the sake of the common good and for the protection of the right of others, and that's something that, for instance, in Germany, Immanuel Kant highlighted very clearly in, for instance, in the introduction of the um, metaphysic of customs. Uh, and, and, he, and he and other German theories, they claim that's the only way to conceive government. For that reason, it is, it is not um, surprising that after the enactment of the German basic law in uh, uh, the so-called pharmacist cases, the German constitutional court said, uh, of course, the German basic law has some rights and those rights, they can be limited. There is a clause in the German uh, fundamental law, which is Article 19.2, that says that the essence of those rights cannot be touched. But the way to determine the essence of those rights is by means of that idea of proportionality, that every 
authority can limit the rights, but the rights, uh, the limitations should be, should be proportional. Now, I have to say that as a matter of fact, that doctrine picked up in, in Europe and uh, was successful. And uh, Matthias Kuhn, for instance, who is a German uh, author who works on NYU, he claimed that uh, after judicial review, uh, proportionality is the most successful legal transplant in the history of the public law uh, everywhere. And, and his, uh, I think his idea uh, has to do with the, following, with, the, with the following fact, is that when we conceive lists of rights that are big and every day we put more rights there, for instance, many freedoms, and you add economic and social rights, plus equality, plus due process or fair trial, et cetera. Then by, you know, the, the, the only outcome is collisions, collisions between those rights. So the problem is, is how to solve the collisions. And there, here there are two possibilities. Uh, the first one is just to conceive rights as a very narrow uh, uh, domains, uh, which cannot infringe, and the other one is by means of balancing. And, and the idea that I have my reading of the American, um, of several domains of the American constitutional law is that there has been always balancing implicit there, even, even in the First Amendment, in the application of the First Amendment. There are some tests and those tests, uh, the, the different scrutinies, they are linked to balancing somehow. So uh, when we have collisions, we have to have balancing. And, and that's the reason why that doctrine of proportionality has gained a, a lot of ground everywhere. That was transplanted to Asia, to Latin America. The UK, the UK has a different model. And with this final point, I finished uh, talking about the UK and also New Zealand and Australia, is that it, in the UK, there is no constitution, but the Human Rights Act was enacted in 1998 but they had a tradition very, very important in the administrative law, which is the unreasonableness test that came from the very famous Wensbury case of 1948, in which more or less the idea is that, look, the public administration, they can do whatever they want, even infringe upon freedoms, unless it is unreasonable, unless it is unreasonable. That grants the government a higher space of discretion. Now I have to say, with the enactment of the um, 1998 Human Rights Act that changed and that changed after several judgments of the European Court of Human Rights in which um, uh, was the history and very badly for the UK. And for that reason, after, after that, the UK adopted the proportionality principles. And that was the link that, that took that principle also to New Zealand as a principle uh, for interpreting the Human Rights Act of 19, sorry, 1960, and then to the uh, few Australian jurisdictions like Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory in which there are declarations of human rights. The Australian Constitution, the Australian Constitution lacks a chapter of human rights, but those jurisdictions, they, they imported that idea of proportionality and recently, the High Court of Australia since uh, Jasmine, which is Monsilovic of the year uh, 2012, 
they incorporated that doctrine of proportionality only for one freedom that is in the constitution, that is the freedom of implied uh, communication, political communication, which is the only one. But that is more or less the, the trend in India, in South Africa, there is proportionality everywhere. And now the question is, is whether there is, this is a sign of progress. Sometimes no. <laughs> right. I mean, it, you could, certainly you could see all of sort of constitutional uh, law in the United States is explorations about the limits of rights, right? In some sense, if rights were really absolute, then we wouldn't have much to talk about. Um, so it's really just, a, in some sense, a different conceptual frame for getting to similar results. But I'm wondering, especially as someone who did not grow up in the United States, how you see our attachment to the idea that rights are somehow absolute as important to our political order. Uh, you know, I grew up with this idea of hearing these, these um, cliches that, you know, no one, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. And these sort of absolutist statements, which seem very important to the legitimacy of our constitutional order here, that, that we're about rights and rights are, are absolute. How important is that in the United States, do you think? Uh, I would like to say three things about that. I, I think that in, in your statement, the word right is used in a different way in which I use it in my previous explanation. I would call it that at a deep level, a deeper constitutional level, in the sense that I would say, I would say the whole idea of the American liberal constitutionalism is based upon the respect of the, of the essence of certain rights that no one, no regime, no president, no Congress, no corporation can infringe upon. Infringe upon. That, that's one, one, I would call it the deep, the deep idea of rights in American constitutionalism, uh, which is different from the one that I was talking about. It is my, uh, I, my conception or the conception of rights that I used in my previous explanation is a, is a super, more superficial one that it has to do with that idea of how to solve the collisions between rights how to adjudicate those collisions between, for instance, the, the right to privacy of the people that are the target of news and the freedom of speech of the journalist or the newspaper, or how to uh, decide on uh, whether uh, one uh, non-African-American uh, person should be rejected from a public university for the sake of some quotas for uh, uh, linked to uh, African-Americans or Hispanos or uh, Chinese or people from uh, a di diverse background. Those are the things that maybe proportionality can, can help to, to solve. Now, my, my second point is, is the following, which is it, is it is linked to the idea of inalienable rights, is that I, I deeply understand, I deeply agree that the mission of the American constitution is to maintain, or and the legitimacy of the, Amer the whole American constitution system is upon that foundation of maintaining the inalienable rights. 
Now, the third comment, it is that that idea is in danger. Is in danger. In, indeed, and, and maybe that polarization is, is putting in danger the whole idea. Just a sign of that is that um, the um, former Secretary of State, uh, Pompeo, he um, requested some scholars to put together a report on the, that idea of inalienable rights and to update it to our days and then to link to the international human rights law. And the report is a wonderful report, which is uh, not only a good uh, research outcome, but also is a wonderful pedagogical document for anyone who wants to know about the idea and the evolution of inalienable rights in the US. Now, uh, once the report was delivered, the current uh, Secretary of State, and I, and I use the word that he used, repudiated the report, repudiated the report. So in, in the sense that right now, at least his view is that that concept is linked to one of the parties in the polarization. And I, I think that also can deteriorate uh, the, the uh, constitutional democracy in America, those rights, Maybe my, uh, one, one thought that I had is that if, the, if this government would have commissioned someone to put a report like that, maybe 90% of the report was going to be the same because it's just history. It's just a reading of the history of American constitutionalism. So why, what's the point of repudiating that report? That would be like my comment concerning that. Yeah, really interesting. And I we could talk about this for quite a while, but I did want to get to just uh, one final area. Um, Carlos, uh, you were just um, elected to the uh, Inter-American uh, Human Rights Commission. Congratulations on that. And I did want to just talk to you a little bit about your plans for your being a commissioner. Um, and it, just to put it in in a particular frame of reference. So international courts, and you, you've written about this a bit, international courts, um, human rights tribunals, have, an, have are inherently weak without uh, strong enforcement powers. Um, how do you plan to sort of pursue your uh, time on the court in terms of trying to make a positive difference for human rights with that understanding that uh, there's, there's limits on what countries will actually be willing to carry out. Thank you so much for, the, for that question. My, my view is the, is the following. It, is a, it looks paradoxical what, what I'm going to say, but courts and commissions, they are very powerful, weak institutions. Why is that? Very powerful because they have a say in many things in the political life of a society or also concerning global issues. But very weak because they don't have proper ways to enforce the decision. Uh, three years ago, I was at a conference in the King College, King's College in London and I was talking to the judge of the Federal German Constitutional Court, uh, Susanna Bea, and she was, she was presenting uh, the history of a case in which the German Constitutional Court allowed a demonstration of an extremist 
extremists, no Nazi right party in a town. And then the mayor refused to comply with the, with the order. And then of course my question is, what do you do? And her answer, the answer of the judge of one of the most powerful courts in the world was the following. We wrote a letter and sent it to a newspaper and nothing happened after that. So the, the problem that we have uh, also with international courts is that some of their judgments, they, they can really become symbolic in the sense that is just the expression of some desire and not a uh, not law that is enforceable. For this reason, one one of the things that uh, that I emphasize in the in the campaign to the commission when I had the opportunity to talk to the uh, representative of the different missions of the states is that actually the the state officials domestically they are the hands of the system. And the commission has not emphasized the, the role of political, uh, sorry, of practical assistance and training of the officials on the ground, at least in the Americas, in, in Latin America, there is little knowledge about human rights standards of the inter-American system. So just to answer your question, the, the first point would be to increase that idea of of capacity building, of capacity building uh, uh, of the officials in the country. Then the second point is that I, I deeply disagree with some of the ways the commission uh, has uh, and has done uh, its work in the previous years, at least concerning two points, the, uh, sorry, three points. The first point I would describe it as adversarial, the second, the second characteristic as bilateral, and the third one as um, monothematic, monothematic. And I will explain that. The commission has emphasized its role, uh, its legal role as a role, as a first step in the process of uh, dealing with individual petitions by citizens of the state. Then focusing on that, or focusing on that leads the commission to be first bilateral in the sense that the commission uh, opens a case against one state, Colombia, Ecuador, Argentina. Second, adversarial in the sense that if the commission finds that there, are ev there is evidence of human rights violation, then it begins the process, the procedures against the state and makes some recommendations. If the state doesn't comply, then it can take the case to a court. And third, monothematic in the sense that those petitions just deal with with problems that are relevant to one individual. And sometimes they are just, uh, they pertain to one domain. For instance, uh, you know, some labor, kind of labor protection. So the right of a migrant to access healthcare, or et cetera. Now, my, my view is that the human rights problem is in our hemisphere. They are, they are first complex, instead of monothematic, they are structural, they require structural changes, changes. The second point is that they are not bilateral, but regional. And the third one is that for the reason that just an adversarial collusion, uh, sorry, solution doesn't help. Let's think about at least two. One, one is climate change. 
that will affect the Caribbean countries very soon or is affecting already the Caribbean countries. The second one is migration. How to deal with migration? Right now, there is just one, one case of migration that has been solved by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Um, if I just take one petition of one citizen that migrated, for instance, or tried to migrate to the United States, then I put all the burden, all I, I, I put that complex, complex issue in the hands of one state and the case of the citizen. Now, my, my view is that the commission should open the a deliberation space with the states, call the states that are um, relevant for that particular issue, make it regional, make it regional, try to address structural problems and to create structural solutions, and then not to be adversarial, but to promote those, uh, the, the, those solutions uh, for human rights in the hemisphere. That, are link, that can be easily linked, for instance, to funding. There is a lot of funding in the area of human rights, and that funding is just, uh, is just uh, focused in, in peculiar separate matters. The, from my point of view, the Commission can be a cluster for human rights that can uh, create a space in which state authorities, funders, and private parties, and NGOs, and victims, they can get together, talk about the issues, try to work out solutions, and that could be more beneficial for the uh, for the raising the levels or the thresholds of human rights respect in our hemisphere that than just does that view that is adversarial, bilateral, and monothematic. So, so as a final question, Carlos, I think that's really quite interesting and be a lot of discussion about dispute resolution and the, the best ways of, of doing that. I guess my question is as as a Commissioner on the on the court, are you able to effectuate that directly through changes? Can the commissioners change the procedures of of the uh, of the commission, or do you need to actually get um, the OAS as a body to change the procedures in the way that you're suggesting? I, that's a very interesting question. Actually, I think that the commission already has the competence to do that, the powers to do that. The commission has basically uh, three kinds of functions. One is legal, which is just the, this idea of uh, dealing with the individual petitions. But in addition, the, the commission has two big political functions. The first one is to monitor states, to monitor states and then to dialogue with them about structural human rights issues. And the third one, and this is the most important one, is to monitor some, some key legal, uh, some key human rights issues. For instance, uh, there is a rapporteur for the freedom of expression. There is a rapporteur for uh, economic and social rights. And in addition, some of the commissioners, they, they work as rapporteurs of indigenous populations, indigenous people, of children, etc., and is in the realm of those political functions that I uh, I'm proposing the commission to try to focus and do more some more preventive job, uh, tasks than only the remedial legal that the commission used to do. Well, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, for joining me in our second edition of On the Witness Stand.
Thank you so much, Dean Strauss, for this opportunity.